0: Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Joshua Kay. You're listening to season four, episode six of our in depth series on climate change and how it's transforming the world we live in.
1: A number of nations, Australia included in this, doesn't have designated climate laws. So that's why climate litigation is so important.
0: Today's episode is all about how young people are forcing businesses and governments to act on climate change by taking them to court. You're going to hear from two guests. First up, I chat with Paul Govind, who is an expert on climate change lawsuits. Then you'll hear from Mark McVie, who in his early 20s took on his multi-billion dollar super company and won. Paul Govind, welcome to Global Questions. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Josh. You're a lecturer at Macquarie University's Centre for Environmental Law. Can you tell me what sparked your interest in the legal aspects of climate change?
1: Well, I've been following climate change uh, from a research perspective for, for a good few years now. I think what really struck me first was how fundamental the problem of climate change is. And that fundamental nature meant that any action... Uh, to combat climate change, either in terms of what we call mitigation, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, or adaptation, adapting to the effects of climate change. This was going to take some serious change and the legal system is not going to be above those questions. And uh, it's very much part, it's an institutional part of those uh, activities and uh, whatever else processes that have not only driven climate change, but are actually vulnerable to climate change also. And that's, I think, what we're, what we're starting to really see now is that uh, fundamental realignment of uh, laws kind of values, I think, with the climate problem.
0: Let's talk about the legal system and climate change litigation then. What is climate change litigation? Can you give us an overview of what it is and some examples?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Climate change litigation is a very broad term. It involves all sorts of, I think, different different law, really. Uh, most recently, I think, um, with, with the Sharma case, what, what, what I'm going to call the Sharma case in um, Australia here with uh, the federal court decision, what we're seeing there is the use of a tortious basis, a duty of care uh, as, as a sort of launch pad for climate uh, litigation. But, of course, we've seen litigation uh, involving climate change related to a whole series of legal regimes, legal systems, which otherwise aren't really related. So we're talking corporate law as well. We're talking uh, shareholders pressuring corporations to disclose climate risk. We're talking, of course, about uh, planning law, which is, um, is actually a big part, uh, land use planning law, that is. That's a big part of the Sharma case and another famous case uh, in recent history from New South Wales, the Rocky Hill case from the Land and Environment Court. Human rights as well, of course. not Maybe not so much in Australia, though I think we could see some movement on this front soon. But definitely across Europe, we've seen human rights be used as the legal launch pad for uh, you know, climate litigation. So it's a very, very broad sort of idea, climate litigation. It involves all sorts of different areas of law that sort of uh, are brought under this, this, this umbrella. I think one of the reasons for that, though, uh, Josh, is that... A number of nations, Australia included in this, doesn't have designated climate laws. So that's why climate litigation is so important. It's bringing together these different areas of law and applying them to a a very real climate present and climate future.
0: We've got the second highest number of climate change lawsuits globally, second only to the US. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, well, it's an interesting stat that keeps getting thrown up. I think one thing is that Australia lacks any, at least at the federal level, lacks serious climate legislation. There is no designated climate legislation in Australia at the federal level. I know in Victoria, there's a, there's a Climate Change Act. New South Wales, though, there's, again, nothing really designated for this particular purpose. And I think litigation has been seen as a vehicle by which to fill that regulatory gap that's been that's emerging. So I think that could be a reason, very well could be a reason. Australia's legislation is 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 so far behind the rest of the world, at least in terms of you know similar, you know democratic capitalist sort of countries. And another reason I think is that Australia's international position on climate change has never really been terribly convincing. And we look at the the current situation under the uh, the Morrison government and it does not look particularly uh, promising. We can we've got a, a, a COP a conference of the parties for the um, uh, international climate law uh, convention coming up at the end of the year, and Australia's position is is already being heavily criticised uh, by commentators within Australia and, and international commentators as well. So I think a combination really, and, and the two points are related. Australia's poor international standing on climate change and the lack of, I think, political or politico-legal leadership in terms of dedicated, designated climate legislation. I think these two factors have driven this, this rise in climate litigation.
0: So if it's being used to fill a policy gap, is it an effective method of doing that, though? I mean, courts are usually an avenue of last resort, aren't they? Mm. They're used after people have suffered harm. So does that reactive nature diminish the effectiveness of climate change litigation?
1: Yeah, it could. I think, though, we need to be mindful, as I said earlier, so many different legal systems are being now brought under this broad climate litigation umbrella. But you are correct. In some respects, yes, the decision itself in a particular judgment, really, will it go much further? And that's always the question, isn't it? What is the broader regulatory effect? Does it just is it is it constrained to the parties in the, in the case, or will it have a broader effect on modifying behaviour? So yeah, so in some cases, probably not. It's, it's difficult to say.
0: As you've sort of mentioned, climate change litigation is so varied and broad, and it's borrowing from all these other areas of law. And in that sense, it's arguably expanding those areas of law. These are arguments that haven't been put before the courts before. So how are the courts responding to these creative and novel arguments? Are they suspicious of it? Do they push back against it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think we've seen a change. I think there were times when, say, 15 or so years ago, maybe a bit more, so between 15 and 20, I think the argument was quite a, a novel argument, as you say. And one where I think the implications were, um, were, were treated with scepticism, I think. I think now, though, this kind of uh, what you call creative way of uh, looking at, at, at current existing law and trying to contextualise that law in a climate change constrained future. I think this has been received a lot more positively
0: by courts. So do you think it's likely then that we'll see more of these sorts of cases in the coming years?
1: I think so, yeah, I think so. Um, I know that um, the Environmental Defenders Office, they've got at least three or four coming up this year. So, yeah, you know, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think, you know, potential litigators, be it uh, community action groups, be it shareholders, as, as we said before, They've all seen that the change is, is coming. There is an appetite for change, I think.
0: Is it a durable form of action? Can these sorts of decisions be overturned on appeal? And in that sense, is government policy the preferable action here?
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, I think this, this isn't something which we can rely upon. I mean, if, if, if anyone uh, is of the mind that they believe strong climate law is necessary, then this isn't a sustainable solution even if there is a proliferation of, of of cases coming through all sorts of courts with with all sorts of legal basis yeah we there must be a legislated um response to climate change now i'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with member of parliament zali steggall's um climate bill Yeah, you know so that that's the kind of thing um i think that that is needed you make a good point. Some of these decisions can either be appealed and and then of course overturned within the court system itself, or of course governments could could um, amend legislation to cut down the opportunities for these sorts of cases to even see the light of day. So you're right. You know um, this this uh, stream of uh, of cases is is exciting. I think it's doing a wonderful sort of job, but you're right. It's fragile. It's very fragile.
0: Climate litigation also has an international aspect too. Instead of suing their own governments, we're seeing cases of some people suing businesses and governments overseas. So, for example, in 2017, there was a Peruvian farmer who sued Germany's largest power company for their role in contributing to climate change and, by extension, damage to his farm. Do you think we're likely to see more cases along those lines?
1: yeah those cases are are quite interesting. I think the next step, really, what we're going to see in in uh, climate litigation, and we'll probably see this in in some other areas of environmental law as well, but particularly climate litigation, is arising what's called transnational sort of sort of law transnational climate law. and I think we're we're starting to see a little bit of this now in terms of the agenda case in the Netherlands having quite strong reverberations through the world. Again, I mean, that, that also had some tortious basis to it as well. Of course, there's the human rights angle as well we're seeing. But that sort of case that you mentioned with the yeah, Peru, Peruvian farmer and um, the German company, will we see more of those sorts of cases? It's, it's possible. I mean, it's possible. I think one of the biggest issues there, though, has always been, and this is sort of characteristic of climate litigation more generally, especially with uh, emissions liability type stuff, is attribution and that's always been a bit of a problem like who do we attribute the emissions to but I mean one thing that's that's sort of come along quite a lot as well is attribution science the idea that we can attribute where emissions came from uh, in terms of um, a company or or country or whatever else so it it is possible but I think what is more likely is a rise in the transnational climate litigation uh, theme
0: and so what sort of cases are we talking about when you say transnational litigation?
1: So it, it works a little bit differently in the sense that I don't think it's a, it's a question of a, a litigant in country A suing a company in country B, for instance, but it, it's more this idea, again, that uh, there are regulatory gaps and the transnational type stuff is, is filling those sorts of gaps. Now, the gap there, so you remember, you know, you asked me about international law. There's no real litigation at the international law level. So no one's really litigating, for instance, say, the Paris Agreement per se. I mean, it comes up in judgments, but but it's more of a backdrop, I think, than anything else. I mean, there's no ICJ decision, for instance, ever, you know, remotely close to climate change. So that's kind of what we're looking at there, is how can these sorts of cases then sort of... um almost in a way the ideas be exported to other countries and those countries then take this on board and does it inspire or, or guide action in that way? I think that's what we're going to see.
0: Do you think there's any potential for governments to sue other governments over climate change? <laughs> that's
1: that's an interesting one. Um, the Well, that's also been mooted before. I think, uh, I can't remember, sorry, I think it was Palau, the country Palau in, in the Pacific, sought an advice from the ICJ around some of these issues. Now, again, I think the big problem there is, was well, a couple of problems. The first one really, and, and I think this remains the biggest one, is going to be attribution and causation, things, things of this nature. Because often we see Australia in the firing line, uh, and probably rightly so, when um, the pacific islands talk about their plight and australia's terrible record on climate change but of course the the sort of easy defense there is to say well you can't really it wasn't necessarily us that did this could have been you know anyone's emissions really you don't know because it's a global it's truly global phenomenon so i don't think we're going to see anything really on that front i think the the other reason is I, think, I don't think international law lends itself very well to it. I mean, you have the sort of more customary law principles in international law regarding transboundary harm, etc. But I think if you look at, say, international treaty law, the, the, the climate law regime at international level doesn't lend itself very well to this sort of stuff because the reason being is because the treaty itself has never set a cap on, on, on emissions, on global emissions. And until it does that, it's really hard to say who breached their allotment and therefore put the put vulnerable countries or or, or the planet at risk. So until an international regime does that, I think it's extremely difficult uh, under climate treaty law to really set a basis for any sort of litigation of that nature.
0: Yeah, it just underscores the multidimensional and very varied nature of climate change litigation. Paul Govind, thank you so much for your time. If any of our listeners want to get in contact with you or talk more about your work, how can they find you?
1: Email's the best. So just uh, my name, paul.govind at mqmacquarie.edu.au. And also um, you'll find some of my thoughts and ramblings (laughs) as well as my colleagues from the Centre of Environmental Law on our blog, Law and Nature uh, Dialogue.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Next up, after the break, is my interview with Mark McVie. Don't go anywhere. Do you love Global Questions? Then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year. Find
2: us on your socials. Search Young Diplomat Society to keep up to date with upcoming events.
0: At the age of 23, Mark McVie launched legal action against his superannuation company, Rest, arguing it had failed to consider the effects of climate change when investing his money. And the case was described as a world first. No one had sued a super company on the basis of climate change before, and some say that the super industry may never be the same again. Mark, welcome to Global Questions.
2: Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here.
0: So can you set the scene a bit for us? Why did you choose to take on a $57 billion super company?
2: Yeah, sure. So I don't think it ever really was just a simple question of, oh, I should go out and sue my superannuation company. It really just kind of snowballed from uh, when it all kind of started back in, I think, 2017 and just asking some simple questions to my superannuation and not getting the answers I wanted. So uh, it wasn't until like a big long way down the track that we actually kind of started considering like this should be legal action here that there is you know questions that aren't being answered that should be and uh so yeah it was much more of a snowball action than any single decision to take on a super fund
0: so what were those questions you were asking at the time
2: yeah, so I was interested in how exactly Rest was dealing with climate change as far as their financial investment decisions were concerned. Uh, I was interested in what kind of policy they had in regards to climate change. Did they consider it a, a risk to their management and what they were doing? Did they have any risk management processes involved? Uh, basically, any any information I could get around climate change and, and what they were doing as a, a manager of my money. And when I emailed them about it, I didn't get. Any information whatsoever, they've referred me to a, just a simple web page that said Rest takes uh, environmental, sustainable, and government's issues into account, uh, and that's it. No extra detail than that. So those were the kind of questions I was asking, and, and the kind of information I was chasing, and which initially led us down the path to yeah taking them to court.
0: So what led you to ask those questions in the first place? Because I imagine not many other 23-year-olds are hounding their super companies to tell them about their climate change policies.
2: Yeah, sure. So basically, I was studying ecology at at the time and we're doing a lot of uh, research on climate change and and kind of understanding it. And I was always kind of wondering what I should be doing that wasn't just, you know, composting or not using disposable plastics and that kind of thing, you know, what actual action I could do, uh, that would be beneficial. And there was quite a lot of, I guess, talk online about how money and, you know, choosing a specific bank or an insurer or something like that is, is, is powerful in, in action and with climate change, because those money basically makes the world go round. It's, it's what produces a lot of the carbon is, is just investment in general. So, I used a website called Market Forces. They had a, a little tool on their website that you could look up your superannuation and and see like what they were doing about climate change, whether they had a policy or, or, or something like that. Um, and when I typed in REST, they didn't have any information. And I was like, oh, I kind of want to know more about this. So that's when I sent the, the first email to, to REST because I did kind of expect them to have something. I mean, they're something like $50 billion superannuation company. They hold the superannuation of... You know most retail workers in Australia. You know the people that work at Woolies and and Coles. You know, so that's that's the what kind of spurred me on at the start. Yeah,
0: and so when you did ask them those questions, what was the response that you got?
2: Yeah, like like I said, just a copy paste e- email directing me to a web page, and I sent a few emails after that as well, requesting information, and basically just got the same answer back again. So yeah, but I was not happy, and I think that's basically what ended up. Making this all happen is is basically my stubbornness to not, not accept that answer and, and wanting to actually get some information out of them.
0: Mm. So how did that lead to actually then launching Legal Action?
2: Yeah, so after basically doing that, I, I tried to talk to some people and find out what I could really do next. I ended up getting in contact with Market Forces who directed me to Environmental Justice Australia, who put me in touch with a man called David Barden. Now, David is a lawyer. He basically talked me through it and came basically to the conclusion that they should be giving me that information and that there was a case there for basically to to take them to court and and request that information through the the legal process. Of course, we didn't want to jump straight to there. We we sent some more communication to rest and uh, we tried to go through the official... I can't remember exactly what it's called, but there's a official boards and stuff you can take issues with uh, the regulator. But in the end, the legal process seemed to be the best way forward. And that's the way we went.
0: And so how did you feel when that decision was made to take them to court? Was it daunting at all?
2: Yeah, terribly daunting. It's 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 terrifying. There's a, a lot of money involved and uh, this risk. And uh, all of a sudden, I guess there's uh, a lot of publicity as well. You, you're put in the spotlight for this this huge case and it's, uh, yeah, it's very daunting. All of a sudden you, you have to start talking to media and people are asking you lots of questions and all you're really trying to do is find out some information from from this company and, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's
0: getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so did you get much support throughout that period?
2: Yeah, I mean, publicly uh, people were very, very supportive of the case. You know, it's like a David always called it uh, – David and Goliath story of, you know, young kid taking on a big, big company and people were generally very supportive of that. So yeah, it was great to actually hear people come up to me and say, you know, I I think what you're doing is very important and this needs to be done. And I've been thinking similar things and yeah, it was, it was fantastic actually.
0: So I'm interested to know then what were the main legal arguments that you were making at the time?
2: Yeah. So there was basically two parts to the case. The first was Around something called fiduciary duty, which is the duty that the superannuation company has to make sure that your money isn't invested precariously and that the money is invested with adequate risk um, taken into account. And basically, every superannuation company is, uh, has to abide by their fiduciary duty to you know uphold that standard. Um, so we were testing to say that the climate change uh, should form part of that fiduciary duty. You know, it's a risk to to money. Um, It's risk to investments and therefore it should be accounted for when deciding where to invest and making those kind of decisions. Uh, The second part of the case was more about disclosure. So the information I was actually requesting at the very start, that that information should have been made available to me. So they were potentially breaking their requirements to, to give me that information.
0: You eventually reached an agreement with REST just before the court hearing was about to begin. So it effectively settled out of court. What did REST agree to do in that agreement?
2: Yeah, so basically the night before we go to trial, they basically um, agreed to a settlement. And yeah, a bunch of good things came out of that. We, REST declared a, a target for a 2050 uh, carbon neutral portfolio. They basically had a bunch of amendments to their climate policy and, and uh, new implements in there for disclosure for Um, negotiating with other investments and through through the regulator they yeah also would be supportive of motions in certain uh, votes that happen with their investment companies Uh, yeah basically a whole long list of changes to their climate policy and the way they deal with climate change as a company and as an investor so it was a a great outcome
0: so what impact do you think that Agreement and the precedent that it's set is going to have on the way that REST and other superannuation companies think about climate change going forward. Yeah. I
2: mean, even as soon as we started talking about taking climate change to court and then serving them documents and that kind of thing, the regular start, it's basically been talked about all over the world as well. This isn't just Australian superannuations, it's other retirement funds. Basically, a lot of them start shaking in their boots, you know, like they're realizing that they are liable and, you know, their members might be taking them to court if they don't shape up their their policies and actually start doing something about climate change risk. So the impact's been global. We've had people talk to us um, from all over the world saying the the changes that are happening in the companies over there and the companies in Australia as well. And I mean, just after a few weeks after REST made their settlement changes a few superannuation companies in Australia I can't remember off the top of my head but they you know announced 2050 targets as well there's basically a, a cascading effect coming from this case that uh, superannuation c- companies are basically making huge changes now
0: the ramifications of the decision are really obvious when you look at just how much money is tied up in super not only in Australia but globally
2: yeah it, it is a it's a hell of a lot of money I mean it's uh, I c- can't remember exactly what it is in Australia, but at one point it was it was two point seven trillion in in super. It is just an unfathomable amount of money, um, and and making sure that that money is invested safely and you know without risk undue risk from climate change, uh, it's going to make a, a huge difference to to young people, especially when they actually finally get to to access their super. In when you know the impacts of climate change are well underway.
0: So now nearly a year on, I'm interested to hear your reflections on the legal system and on the overall experience. What did you learn about the legal system and the law throughout it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, especially coming from, like, I'm not a lawyer. I, I'm not really interested in, in the, the finicky, detailed parts of law either. But from my experience, it, I have such a respect for how powerful it is as a tool for change. But it is also very slow and it's very frustrating at times. Uh, you know, the case took a long time and the, the the process and the way it works is is not it's not speedy, but in the end, it's worth it. There's a lot of power there to into implement real change. Uh, and I think it's been something that's becoming very popular, which is great. A lot more people are, are kind of starting these climate change related court cases. And um, I think it's it's a great avenue of change that has, I guess, previously not been used as much um, as as it probably should have been.
0: So do you think the fact that young people are having to rely on the courts to bring about change in climate change policy is a sign that the political system has failed when it comes to dealing with these risks?
2: A hundred percent. It's These these court cases like would not really be necessary if governments and, and policies were actually put in place to, I guess, to make sure these things happened. You know, like uh, I think a lot of this movement to target the financial system as a means for climate change action it mostly bears out from the fact that government has been sitting there doing nothing for so long large large amount of effort is now going towards directly targeting companies and their actions because but the government's not going to do it so yeah 100% that that is that is the reason why this is happening
0: what message do you have for any of our listeners who find themselves unhappy with the way that companies or the governments are responding to climate change?
2: Yeah, I mean, do exactly what I did. Contact them, send a message. Um, the more people that contact a company like that, it, it gets noticed uh, and they have to have answers. It's, it's really amazing how much just simple questions can, can change uh, a company like that. Um, It's been shown time and time again. Like if you go to an annual general meeting of a large company and you sit there and you ask questions to the board of directors, which any shareholder can do about climate change, it has a huge impact on that company. All of a sudden, these directors have to actually educate themselves on climate change and be ready and be able to answer these kind of questions. So it's it's the same kind of thing. If you're sending these these questions and you're you're demanding answers from companies, they'll have to actually answer at some point. My other advice, obviously, would be to join, join an organization. There's a whole bunch out there that all do meaningful action and target uh, companies and and that kind of thing. You know, there's market forces, there's 350.org, there's uh, the AYCC as there's a whole bunch of different organizations out there. They're all doing meaningful work uh, and always would, you know, need more people to, to help that fight. So that would be my advice. Yeah.
0: And so how has the experience overall shaped and changed you? Has it made you um, decide that you want to do more in the climate change space in the future?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a battle that I think I'll never never be able to give up on. I'll be doing it for the rest of my life, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's, it's, sometimes it can feel very hopeless. I mean, especially with the kind of work I do directly in the environment and, and seeing what the, I guess, the actual on the ground implications of climate change are, but I'm still very hopeful. that The young people today are, are really impassioned um, about it and there's a lot of meaningful work going on, but there's still a lot of work to do and I'll be continuing that for a long time.
0: Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to hear about your experience. We appreciate you coming on the show.
2: No problem. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure you follow Global Questions on Instagram and check out our website too, where you can leave suggestions and feedback. All the links are in the episode description. We'll see you next week.